welcome to anybody that is new this morning with uh, campus starting across the street. There's often a lot of new people, so uh, welcome. Thank you for coming and being a part of what the Lord's doing here this morning. My name's Chuck. I'm one of the pastors, and uh, you may have noticed this morning that as we've sung, as we've prayed, as we have uh, read, that everything we've been talking about has been centered on what God has done for us in Christ and in what the scriptures tell us. And so uh, the, if the worship gathering is a meal, then the main course, if you will, is the sermon. And in the sermon, we'll look especially at what God says uh, in his scriptures. The vast majority of the time here at Churchill Mill, we work our way through books of the Bible. So we'll start at verse one of chapter one in a book, and we'll just go thought by thought through that book uh, from beginning to end, and then we'll pick up another book and do the same thing over and over and over. We do that because we believe that's the, the best way to ensure that what we're saying from the pulpit is what God says in His Word. There are times, though, every now and then where instead of going all the way through a book, we'll have a theme, and it'll be a theme that we think is a timely, important issue to cover, and so we'll look sort of across multiple books in order to see that theme. For the next three weeks, we're going to be doing that. As you see on the screen, um, we're going to be in this series called Why We Exist. We'll be considering the purpose of Church on Mill, and uh, we found every couple of years that that's a helpful thing uh, to do. We still want to interpret each verse in its context draw out the meaning from that passage on its own terms. But in so doing, looking across a couple of books, we can see how these themes are in lots of books of the Bible. So I hope that'll be a particular encouragement to you. Uh, why consider the topic of the church? Well, I'm glad you asked. Why? I'm glad you asked. Um, Perhaps it'd be helpful to illustrate uh, the need. Let's say you've uh, filled up your water bottle for the day and you've stuck it in your bag and you've headed out to class or to work, whatever it is you happen to be doing that day. You arrive at your destination, you're thirsty because it's 200 degrees out and you unzip your bag to find that your water bottle no longer has much water in it, but your bag has lots. Happened to you? Yeah, that's a terrible feeling. While the water bottle's still there, the water bottle has no longer fulfilled its purpose. The reason that happens often, at least here in Arizona, is if you use the same water bottle long enough, the heat literally melts away the little gasket inside. And so if the seal no longer works, then the water bottle completely loses its function. Over time, that's what happens. And so you can keep pouring water in there, but unless you get a new gasket, you're gonna keep getting a wet bag. The water leaks over time. The same thing happens in a church. The, the understanding of us as the people of God can sort of erode over time, can chip away at that vision gasket, and we can lose sight of who we are and what we're about. And the reason that happens is not because we're 
horrible people and don't love God. It's that the, the flurry of needs and activities and opportunities can cause us to lose sight of why we exist. So in this short series, we're just going to consider the next couple of weeks what it is that we are trying to accomplish and who we are so that together we can keep fulfilling our God-given purpose. If you're new to Christianity, thank you so much for being here today. It's a joy to spend time with you, and we feel honored that you would be here. It's important that you know that it doesn't matter what church you visit. Every Every true church, every church that looks to the Scriptures for guidance, every church that preaches the gospel has the same exact purpose. So it's not as though we're saying in these next three weeks, here's what makes Church on Mill unique and special and don't go anywhere else because they don't know what they're doing. But rather, this is what every true church looks to. This is what every godly pastor is going to be saying. And so if you end up here, great. If you end up somewhere else, great. Uh, we just want to be faithful to do what every true, every true church is supposed to do. It doesn't matter that church's size or location or denomination. None of those things really make that big of a difference because every church has received its purpose, its mission, its goal from God's Word. Now, it's true that churches express that in different ways, and we'll be talking about how we express it here, but at the end of the day, it's all the same goal. We understand ourselves to be here at Church on Mill Uh, a church family that focuses on making disciples and helping churches for the worship and glory of God. That's up there on the screen. Would you read it with me? A church family making disciples and helping churches for the worship and glory of God. So that's the way we say it here. Uh, Again, I would just want to emphasize, we're not trying to be flashy, different, new, innovative trying to be faithful to what God says the church is and what it's for and what its goals are. You'll notice if you look at that statement carefully that there are three parts to it. The first part is a a statement of identity. It's a church family. That's who who we are because of what Christ has done for us. That's what I want to visit with you about today. Next week, we'll take that second piece, our, our mission. What's, what are we about? What do we do? Well, out of who we are comes what we do. We are a church family that's making disciples and helping churches. So next week, Lord willing, we'll consider a couple of scriptures that teach us that. And then finally, why do we do that? Well, we do that ultimately for the worship and glory of God. At the end of the day, the church belongs to Jesus. He is our senior pastor. He's our head. And do we want to help people? Yes, of course. But the best way to help people is actually not to make them what everything's about, but to keep God as the focus, to keep God as our central aim. And as we do that, then he will be glorified and honored. So this morning... We just want to take that first piece, that identity piece, just who is the church? What is the people of God? 1 Timothy 3 is going to tell us, 
And so if you'd look there, that would be real helpful. If you don't have a Bible underneath the seat in front of you, you should be able to find a chair Bible. And towards the end of the New Testament, that second half, you'll find 1 Timothy 3. We'll be jumping in in verse 14. But incidentally, uh, after this series is over, then we will be coming back to 1 Timothy. And we're going to spend the rest of the fall through the month of January looking at 1 Timothy. For our purposes today, a little bit of context because we're jumping in in the middle of a discussion. For three and a half chapters, Paul's been saying to somebody named Timothy, who he had appointed to be the temporary leader of a church in the city of Ephesus. He had appointed him to get things back in order and to help the church develop and grow and to correct some false teaching that had crept in and ultimately to set up a good godly eldership to help lead the members of that church in the city of Ephesus. And so he's going to say, here's the reason I've been writing this to you. So look with me, if you would, at verse 14, 1 Timothy 3, 14. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Partway through this letter, the Apostle Paul states the central reason why he wrote. He says, I'm writing these things to you. Well, what's the these things? It's everything that came before it in the letter, and I had to do a lot of seminary to figure this out. It's everything else he's going to write in the rest of the letter. So he says, I'm, I'm writing this to you for this reason. I want you to know how people ought to behave. Now, there's some tough stuff in 1 Timothy 1, especially for us in 1 Timothy 2. We'll be looking at that later this fall. And he says the reason, how, the reason why it matters how you behave when you get together is because, we'll come back to that at the end. <laughs> I want you to hold that thought in your mind, all right? I'm writing these things to you so that you'd know how to behave. These things what come before, these things what's come after. But for our purposes today, would you notice his first description of what the church is? He says the church is the, the household of God. There's lots of ways the Bible describes the church. But here, the first thing out of his pen is we're the household of God. There are other word pictures, even here, that the church is a pillar, that the church is a buttress, whatever that is. It means a protector. The church, we know from other scriptures, is a body. The church is a bride. But here he's focused in on this central idea. The church is the household of God. A household is a family, a, a people who live together in a cohesive unit as the basic building block of society. That's what a family is. 
So Church on Mill, just like every other church gathering today to make much of God, to worship Him together, the church is, is a family. Before jumping to what we do, it's central, it's critical that we consider who we are. How are we a family? Well, we're a family because we share the same Heavenly Father, and we share the same experience of having been united to God, put into relationship with Him because of the work of the Father's Son, Jesus Christ. And so, look around. It doesn't matter your skin color, where you're from, how long you've been in Tempe, how much money you make, whether you have a PhD or are still working on your GED, we're all brothers and sisters in Christ. We share the same table in the same house because we have the same older brother, Jesus. And there's nothing else like that on earth. You know, the only quote unquote institution that will exist for all eternity is the church. The church is the family of God, bound together through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, I realize when I use the word family that that conjures up, unfortunately, that conjures up for many of us everything except positive thoughts and feelings. What was designed by God to be the primary context for safety and care, for stability and development, for unconditional love and constant forgiveness whenever it's needed, the place where the most laughter ought to roll and the needs people have get met, that thing designed by God has turned out for many to leave us with our deepest scars. And so when we read in the scriptures that the church is family, the church is the household of God, that doesn't land like it's supposed to. Because for a lot of us, family has not been what I just described. If that's you, I wanna say I'm sorry. This is a safe place to lament sin and its awful effects. It's right to grieve an abusive father, a cold-hearted mother, because that's not who they were supposed to be. It's not how they were designed to behave. But I want to encourage you to look past your own physical family to hear that in God's family it's different. Is the, the church imperfect this side of heaven? Yes, at least every church I've joined because I joined it <laughs> and I'm not perfect. And so we do hurt, disappoint, and make mistakes. But the nature of the church is God's divinely ordered, ever-sustained unit of brothers and sisters in which God is committed to see us through. And we have the resources because we have the Spirit 
We have the resources to, in fact, love and forgive and to rebuild when things get broken. Amen? In the family, in this family, our authority is not an imperfect father or husband. Our authority is Jesus. And Jesus never makes mistakes. Jesus is our Savior and our Lord and our senior pastor. And Jesus never mistreats us, not a single time. Jesus never exalts some petty, selfish need of his own over what's good for us. He's always giving of himself that we might have what's good for us. He's the ultimate giver. That's who's in charge of the church. He is trustworthy and all-powerful and harnesses all of that toward the good of making us more and more and more and more like him. It's amazing. In a world in which family is for many something to escape, God is building a new family, a better household, one marked not by arrogant selfishness, but by joyful service. Have you noticed uh, how often today, well, even just think of the last week, if you can think back that far. How many times have you heard a, a business or a workplace or a sports team or a school call itself family? That nomenclature is everywhere. Everything refers to itself today as a family. Why? I think it's because deep down we have an innate sense that we know we need family. And as the nuclear family, as the individual family unit of society has become so catastrophically broken down, then everything else has started calling itself family because it's trying to tap into that need everybody knows you have. Now, there's a lot of sports teams I enjoy, but a sports team is not a family. There's a lot of places I love to go eat, but those aren't family. It can't be that. There's schools I went to. I definitely did not find those to be family. The household is designed by God, mother, father, children, to be the basic building block of society. And we're committed as a church to do everything we can to help those nuclear families be strong. But the church also is a family. And so if your family is all kinds of messed up, then know you can find a family here. Because that's what God says we are. The context for nurturing each other in lifelong relationships, family, can only be recovered by a power that's bigger and bolder than human beings can drum up. And that power is available to Christians. 
because we have the very power that resurrected Jesus from the dead living inside of us. There is no power greater than that. God in his mercy is setting things right for his people in his church. What has God done to bring us into family? How can people alienated from God become people welcomed at the table of God? Well, that, friends, is the story of the Bible from beginning to end. If you were to pull on the central plot through all 66 books of the Scriptures, that is what the story is about, how God is taking people who have chosen to rebel against Him and welcoming them at His table. That is the story of the Scriptures. We try to center everything around that here. For example, up up here on the walls, you see these six, three on that side, three on this side, big circle images. And that is a way we try to capture what the Bible says, what the Bible's about, how it tells us how God is making us family. Over here at the top, it's kind of dark, so you may not be able to see it if you're over, way over here, but over at the top is a tree. Now, real trees look like that, not these pointy palm things that we call trees. <laughs> the tree represents creation. The story begins with God creating merely by virtue of his powerful word. God speaks, things come into existence. It's incredible. God spoke and he created the world. If you want to read about that, go to the very first book in the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 2. God, I don't know when, I don't have any idea how old the earth is. I don't think the Bible answers that question. God spoke the world into existence whenever that was. And he made everything good and right and perfect. And he placed two people in a real place called the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve. And for a while, everything was great for them. But one fortuitous day, Eve was tempted by Satan. And Adam was there and did nothing to protect her and help her. And so Eve fell into sin, and Adam fell into sin. And because Adam was our representative, our head, then that second picture has an, an X marked on it. There's no treasure back there in the wall. <laughs> X marks the spot means that we missed, we fell, we, um, we tumbled into sin. The word sin means to miss the mark. The mark is God's holiness, God's good law. And as human beings fell into sin, as Adam in particular fell into sin, then because he represented everyone who would ever live, we all fell into sin. And so all of us, when we're born, are already broken. Sweet, cuddly, yes, but perfect, no. And then as we grow and develop, then we all have those moments in which we choose to do that which we know we shouldn't do. That's what the scripture calls sin, missing the mark. And so, thankfully, the story doesn't end there in the scriptures, but that next one down at the bottom, that arrow pointing towards me, 
That arrow represents what we call promise. If you're curious that where that's verbalized clearly for the first time, it's in Genesis chapter 12. In Genesis 12, God came and voiced a promise to a man named Abram. And ultimately, we know that promise was the promise of the gospel. Because in the New Testament, in the book of Galatians, Paul says God preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. That promise was that God himself would come for his people, that he would build a people for himself, a a family, who he'd restore into right relationship with him. So that the worst effects of that X, that sin, could be reversed. We know ultimately that that was a pointing ahead to Christ, who's over here at the top, that cross. Jesus came to start a new humanity. That's why he had to be born with a heavenly father, not an earthly father. He came and was born to Mary in order that he would grow up and live a sinless, perfect life in our place for the purpose that on a cross outside the city of Jerusalem, somewhere around the year 30 A.D., He could die a substitutionary death such that all people forever who would turn from sin and trust in him can have their sin placed on Christ and Christ can give them his righteousness and holiness. This is what we Christians call the gospel. And then Jesus died, but a couple of days later, he rose again to a resurrected body as a picture, as a foretaste of what every Christian will get. Who's looking forward to that? Then he left, he went back to heaven, and so we get to that fifth image, that double arrow. That is Christians in this church age between Jesus' departure and his return. We look back at what Jesus accomplished for us at the cross because in there is our hope. And we look ahead because we know our king will come again when he will forever banish all evil, give us resurrected bodies, and we'll be with him forever. And so we look back at what he's accomplished in the cross and ahead at what he'll finish when he returns. And that return is ultimately where he'll bring his crowned kingship that all of God's people would be in God's place where everything is perfect forever. That, in a couple of minutes, is the story of the scriptures. It's a true story. It is the story. So how is it that we're made family? Well, we're made family by the miracles that God is accomplishing represented by those six pictures. All of what 1 Timothy 3.15 describes is this miracle that God has made us brothers and sisters. It's wonderful. Now, it's worth considering this morning, briefly, if, if that's who we are, 
then what should mark our relationships with each other? In other words, if, if we are family, then what should be the defining characteristic of how we treat each other? What should be the currency that the church operates on? If family is who we are, surely that affects how we treat each other. With that question in mind, what practically does it mean to be family? Would you flip over to 1 John chapter 4? 1 John 4. So keep turning to the right in your Bibles. If you make it to 2 John, you went too far. 1 John chapter 4. In 1 John 4, we'll find the defining characteristic of how the family of God is to operate. And it's very simple. This is not complicated. 1 John 4, verse 7 says this, Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. The book of 1 John is fantastic. I'd commend it to you, encourage you to read it. It is a, a discussion from beginning to end about how you can know that you know that you know God, how you can know that Christ has saved you. It's wonderfully encouraging and clarifying. John is in the middle of telling us, here's how you know that you know that you know. One of the ways you know is, are you becoming a person marked by love? And are you part of a people who are marked by love? Of all the ways the church could be described, the central way in which we are to relate to one another is that we're to be a people of love. The defining characteristic of the household of God is love. Now, I said a minute ago that it's not complicated. I don't think it is, but it is complicated to actually do because some of us, at least every now and then, don't act in a super loving way. But part of the complication is a lack of clarity about what love is. We are a mess today when it comes to the definition of love. One of the authors I read this week is a writer named Karen Jobes. The writer said this, poets write about it, singers sing about it. Greeting cards convey the sentiment of love, but our world is full of wacky, irresponsible, even perverse definitions of love that are used to rationalize selfishness, manipulate others, and even give evil free reign in the name of love. The world is full of counterfeit love. Do you recognize that is true? When we read in the Bible that God is love, that may be one of the most abused and misused verses in the entire Bible. 
This is a real challenge for us to seek to live in love as God's family because we need an objective standard of what love is. If we would actually love what's godly, then we need that kind of love to have God as its source. We need, if you will, a, a, a true north. That's north. We need a a true north through which we can constantly be pulled back toward the same objective definition of what love is. We need a plumb line to discern if we're actually being lovely toward one another or merely absorbing the ethos of an age in which we're taught Love is to affirm whatever it is you happen to want to do. And hate is to say that's not a good idea. That will be unhelpful if you pursue that. Interestingly, that plumb line, that true north, is given right here in the next verse. Look at verse 9. In this... The love of God was made manifest among us. In this, what's the this? Well, he tells us. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that God has loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. There's our plumb line. There's our definition of love. This is among the most beautiful realities in all the scriptures. God has always loved his people from before anything was created to after this world as we know it is long gone. God, in all of that, has always loved his people. But at a particular moment, in a particular place, for a particular reason, God manifested, he revealed, he showed his love. And this tells us when that was and why that was. God revealed his love here on earth in the fullest possible way. God sent his son, his willing, perfect, completely unique son into the world. We've talked about him already. We've sung about him. We've prayed through him. His name is Jesus. Jesus left heaven, came to earth, became a human being, still God, but added a body. Why? John says, well, so that we might live through him. Christian, you're alive. I'm not talking physically. You've been awakened spiritually. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. And God, in his sovereign mercy, has made you alive. You're awake to the things of God. You're eternally connected to him. However hard the journey is from here to there, you will do it alive with God. 
That means all of God's resources are available to you. And being alive, you've been awakened to the family of God. It's incredible. It's the result of God's good work. Jesus came that we might live through him. Now, if you write in your Bible, you might notice that big $100 word, propitiation. If there's a churchy word, that's it. But that is a beautiful word that it would really bless you to know what it means. The word propitiation, the simplest way to describe it is to simply use the phrase wrath taker. Wrath taker. Jesus absorbed in himself on the cross the full weight of the wrath of God that you and I deserve for our sin. He who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. What is the definition of love that you and I and you and you and we should have for one another? Who's our example? What's that, Jesus? The one who gave of himself so completely. That he died in place of us. Because a sacrificial love that grand Because that love is the very nature of God, then that love has been put in us. We've been recipients of it. Amen? And therefore, we are not to receive that love, receive that love, receive that love, and like a dam, just get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. We're to be conduits through which that love flows out to others. First, to the people of God. Because as brothers and sisters, as family, we take care of each other. We love each other because we've been loved with love that we didn't deserve. And so that love then gets put on display as the people of God help each other grow up in Christ. The family of God should be a place where no legitimate need goes unmet. And then as a shining model of what humanity is supposed to be, as a city set on a hill, then we're to light up the world with the love of God in such a way that we show this gospel's true and the world will see it. We'll have opportunity to Love the unbeliever by speaking about where this love comes from in order that they too could come to know and trust Christ and receive that love, miraculous love. Jesus is the supreme manifestation of the love of God. The ultimate act of love is the incarnation 
and the the self-sacrificial love of the Son to bring about our forgiveness, to be our wrath taker. So how are we to love? Well, we're to love like that. Now, I don't mean get a cross, find somebody to nail you to it, and suffer and die. It's what drove Jesus to that. A servant-heartedness, a humility, a commitment to do what's best ultimately for the other. That's what we're to have for each other. Christ-like self-sacrifice for the ultimate good of one another. Practically speaking, what does that look like? Well, love could mean setting aside YouTube and video games this afternoon to text some brothers in Christ that you didn't see today and say, I missed you. How are you? Anything I can do for you? And see what they say. Love could mean taking a rotation, serving with the preschoolers so that those kids have more involved in their discipleship. They're bringing them up toward the Lord than just their parents. There are other adults modeling godly love to them. Love could mean using a spare bedroom to host a church member who, for a while, got priced out of rent. It's kind of high around here. Love means prioritizing the Sunday gathering everywhere you're in town. And showing up early. And visiting with those around you, even if you're an introvert, in order to encourage them in the love of God. It's having a conversation if you're wondering somebody's struggling with pornography again. It's assuming the best in a brother or sister when they hurt you. And forgiving. There's an endless number of ways to describe this love. Scriptures are actually full of them. Just watch as you're reading the Bible in your ordinary life for places in the New Testament that use the two words one another. You'll find them everywhere. Love one another. Pray for one another. Serve one another. Admonish one another. Give to one another. Weep with one another. That's what we do because that's who we are. We're family. Love, you see, is the currency of the household of God. So in closing, what is the church? The church is not a building. It's not the pastor. It's not a denomination. It's not programs you go to. The church is the family of God. And this family is described mainly by love, a love displayed at the cross, self-sacrificial, joyful for the good of the other, even at the cost to oneself. Brothers and sisters, that's who we are. What's at stake in this love? Well, remember back in 1 Timothy, toward the beginning of this message, I said, I'll tell you at the end. Why did 
Why is it so imperative that the church know it's the household of God? Well, because it's the pillar and protector of the truth. Why is that we do, in fact, love one another matter so much? It's because one of our duties is to guard the gospel. How will the gospel be seen and preserved for the truth that it is? It's as we love one another. Jesus has staked his very mission on us being who we are. And so, brother or sister, if you haven't been loving lately, repent and in God's grace, start again. And if you've been experiencing the love of God through your brothers and sisters, when I finally be quiet, go say something to bless the one who's been loving you well. Let's love each other because Christ has loved us. We stand and pray with me. Father, we thank you that you and your mercies have chosen to love us. While we were still enemies, you sought us out. And in the supreme act of love that will ever occur, God the Son condescended to earth, taking on flesh, living for the last three years of his life as a homeless man, wandering around, preaching, healing, and ultimately deliberately marching himself to his death. Thank you that you have poured love into our hearts and we ask you that you would fuel us that we might love each other well. Thank you for all the ways in which this church excels at that love. Thank you that this is a loving place because we have a loving God. Would you help us to excel still more? And I pray for anyone here this morning that has yet to experience the love of God, that God, even now, you would set your saving love on them. In Jesus' name.